Your company's overall performance depends on having the best information. We are connected to the most amazing network of professionals. It's not just about what you know. It's about having access to the right team for the given situation. I am Warren Spiewak. And I'm Drew Addison. Risk, strategy, marketing, and operations. Welcome to Ahead of the Game. Welcome to another episode of Ahead of the Game. Warren Spiewak made it on time from Houston this time. Warren, welcome back to San Antonio. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. You only there, got stuck behind a train this time, though. There really was a train. I know I know you're <laughs> roasting me, but there really was. Well, I'm glad you made it in. Um, we're, we're back at the Maestro Center. They were gracious enough to allow us to come back in. Um, they, they got us some really nice sweet bread and all sorts of beverages. So The hospitality here is strong. It is strong. It is strong. Well, you know, uh, we, we are really excited about the episode today. Rarely do I sit down and take time to go all the way through a book, but I was so drawn in by this one in particular that I've, I had it done in a couple days. You really did. It's like I, a week ago, you bought the book and here we are today. You actually went through the whole damn thing. Done with all these notes. And well, I'll have to <laughs> put, like, post a picture of my book and uh, all the little notes that I put on there. Well, today's interviews, there's a few things that I love about it, which is we are going to be Carolyn Cromines. And what I think is when you talk to business owners, especially subcontractors, the feeling they get is sometimes that everyone has their hand in their pocket. It's Mm -hmm. like you start your business, you have revenue, and then here comes the expenses. Mm -hmm. And to add to that, Carolyn's book dives into what happens when the people that have their hand in your pocket are the people that you're actually working for. The contracts, the aftermath. Well, the subcontracts is the main key. I mean, and what I do from a daily basis on, on the surety side of things is I read a lot of contracts constantly. Um, I am by no means a lawyer. And and God save Carolyn and all the drive she has to do that kind of type of work to interpret some of the stuff that is, is included on these contracts these days, as she points out in her book pretty intense, right? So the, the book is called Quit Getting Screwed, Understanding and Negotiating the Subcontract. And, uh, you know, it's really a step-by-step process, truly from the bid to closing the damn thing out on what you should do. It is literally thousands of dollars worth of legal advice tucked into this easy-to-read book. Well, and speaking of legal advice, I think one of the things that we agreed on as we get into this interview is we're going to do the full-blown interview. Like, we're not going to rush anything. But when we get down to the business side, I don't want to leave anything untold. Like, anything we find out, anything that will lead one of our listeners to actually engaging, not just with this book, but understanding the offer that Carolyn makes, which is she'll talk to you for free. I mean, there's yeah. there's no excuse not to... Um, have the right information and be in a really strong place. So- yeah, well, my experience in working with Chromine's law firm is, I mean, number one, their their retainer has always been extremely affordable and I, they're really subcontractor focused, which is really important because, I mean, anytime that I'm engaged with one of our clients and we see that we see what's coming, right? We know that a legal advice is going to be needed. I mentioned you need to get some legal help and they freeze up and it's not a fun thing to go through. They don't know how much it's going to cost. They don't know what the outcome's going to be. Um, you know, we, you try to guide them as best you can, but at the end of the day, um, I, I even mentioned this in my in my discussion with uh, Chris Martinez from um, uh, Central Electric in, in the episode with Chris. Right? Um, uh, they're a vital 
component of the core four that I always recommend to all of our contractors, so the legal side. Talking to Carolyn, uh, she did mention that they knew, now have a flat fee for contract review with a turnaround 48 hours. Mm. So if you can spend that le- little bit of money and get your contract reviewed. And be proactive. Absolutely. Get, get out in front of it because you, know, you really don't know what your exposure is until – it hits the fan. All right. Well then let's kick it off. I am so excited. Thank you for being here, Carolyn. Carolyn Cromines. This book, Drew, shout out the, uh, the title here. Yeah. uh, Again, it's uh, quit getting screwed before we really kind of dive into this. um, Maybe if you can give a little bit of backstory on, you know, where you started in in the book, she mentions that um, she's self-proclaimed member of the get shit done tribe. (laughs) So um, Carolyn, if you can kind of maybe, maybe start there and work our way up. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, and I, I'm really trying to get the word out to to negotiate and make more uh, make fairer subcontracts. Um, the get shit done tribe. We are the people that build things, that do things. The ones out there actually, you know, moving the earth, stacking the bricks, putting the light switches on that really, you know, get things done. And that deserves to be protected. And I think there's this false sense of security out there that, hey, there's some set of rules that's going to protect me when I go into this business transaction or something like that. And so I'm just going to sign the subcontract and go to work. And literally the book has the name because I was sick of seeing my clients get screwed. Mm -hmm. And these are the key things that that they could have avoided to not be screwed at the end of the day. It's all boiled down. I try to make it as plain English as possible so it's easily understood. It is so easy to read too. I mean, it it is fascinating. So when it, I, I'm warned, I don't know when the last time it is that you read all the way through a, a subcontract, but uh, it was Saturday detention in high school. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like you know, today, more so than ever, the legal teams that are drafting these contracts are becoming more and more clever on the way that they hide some of these provisions. Oh, and, definitely. And I think I think the subcontract has gotten that way because as lawyers, we were trained to put in all the bad stuff you think you can get away with. Right. And then there'll be a negotiation. But in, this, in, the, in the chance of a subcontractor, they don't want to rock the boat. They want to get the work, so they just sign it. Mm-hmm. And so these things have progressively gotten worse and worse and worse. Like if a regular contract attorney were to pick up a subcontract, they'd rather burn it than try to fix it. It's mm-hmm. so bad. I've done a little research on you. I've, things that you've said that I've read is a, the rules of a subcontract. There are no rules. Why this book? Why did your career go in this direction advocating for subcontractors? When I started writing this book, I looked back at my life and all the things that have aligned for me to know what I know, starting from my first job when I was 10 or 12 years old and I worked for my uncle in an irrigation company and working on bids and and going out to the job site and seeing how the guys work. And then when it came time to get paid, what should I do? Should I sign this lien release? I don't know. I have to make payroll. I'm not going to get paid this week, but at least my guys can get paid. Knowing that that desperation, that how much you need help but not knowing where to turn, has really opened, you know, all the way from my youth. My grandfather owned um, an excavation company that actually went out of business because he didn't get paid on a job. Through when I was in law school, we started, my husband and I started our own material supply business, and that really made me see, okay, there are things out there that I can use in the legal world to run a better business. Mm to make it safer to extend credit and things like that. And so then I, you know, diving into have starting my law practice and then seeing what happened repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And I was so passionate about helping these guys that I would spend my own time and money in these lawsuits because what was happening was so unfair and we would lose. 
and we would lose. And I would lose hundreds of thousands of dollars because I was so devoted to protecting and helping them run better businesses that I didn't realize it was too far gone by the time I got there. Mm. The only way to save it was on the front end saying, hey. Before the nightmare. Yeah, and, and the, but only the only reason why I knew that is because I'd been through it, right? Mm-hmm. I had spent my own time, and most what, what happens most times in a legal dispute like that with somebody signed a bad subcontract is that the attorney, you know, the other side works the attorney to death, they have to withdraw. Mm-hmm. I mean, I took it personally because they're from the get shit done tribe, they deserve to be protected, and my own hours, my own money, and then we still lost, and that's what, at the, when I lost my last trial, when the guy didn't, the work was fine. He didn't do anything wrong. Right. He didn't keep a copy of the daily reports he submitted. He didn't, you know, all those little things that put him in default. He, he was screwed. Literally. Yeah, and, and the reality is, is you know, majority of these subcontractors out there, they're normally really, really good at what they do. Right. They can get the work done to what the contract is calling for. Now it's all these little nuances within the contract that they got to follow. So, and there's a great section on here on the daily reports that. I mean, yes, it sounds mundane and just ridiculous to have to do it, but you know, to p- provide a, a daily summary signed off on by the PM on the project will cover your butt. And I mean, man, like, it, it really kind of kind of hit pretty hard that like you know how many contractors or subcontractors out there are really following that daily log and following through with that and understanding the the magnitude of, of documenting everything that happens. I mean, normally it, it should be kind of commonplace that, okay, if, if there's a change order or something massive or big is gonna change, I'm gonna maybe have somebody sign off on it and I'll keep the napkin in my filing cabinet, right? But you know, when it comes to what you perform daily and going back through and, and making sure that it's being signed off by the PM on site or superintendent, whoever's there, um, it's those little things that, that keep you out of the courtroom. Yeah, exactly. And I like like those chapters on the daily reports, the submittals and all of that is written from the perspective. If I'd gotten a notice of defect letter on behalf of my client, what evidence would I want to show that that's BS, right? Mm-hmm. And here's the things. I have daily reports signed off. You didn't make this bad claim work until I sent a notice of lien. And, and here's all the reasons why that's BS. You know what I'm saying? It, right. can, it can make the legal process a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing is that this book is aimed to keep you out of the courtroom. Um, nobody wins in litigations except the lawyers. I right. mean, and that's not anywhere you want to be to develop your, your business. Is, yeah, you, is you posted that great meme, uh, and you actually have the, the, the quote in the book. Um, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but as your lawyer, nobody wins in the courtroom other than the lawyers. Uh, yes. <laughs> it, is, it is amazing how, yeah, if you drag things out, it, the cost goes up. And I, I know you advocate for settling quickly or preventing the whole issue before it even happens. You know, Brene Brown has a great quote, and she uses it in leadership, is, you know, being clear is kind. Mm -hmm. The same goes in a subcontract. If you could understand what it said and knew what you were required to do, you're more likely to make sure it's done Mm -hmm. and then not end up in the the courtroom at all. No, I I think what's crazy is I hear constantly, oh, it's it's just a standard subcontract. Like, they make it look very standard. Right. And but what is standard when it comes to any contract? Okay, so let's dig into this a little. I'm speaking on behalf of an entrepreneur, whether you're a five million dollar producer or a three hundred thousand dollar producer. Cash flow is king in many in many ways. And if you're in construction, you kind of already are two steps back because of the way these things work. So I know we're going to talk about bids. I know we're going to talk about scopes. I know we're going to talk about the difference between being bonded and insured and all these different things, 
but let's not discount the fact that when you're a contractor and somebody offers you a gig, you really want it. I mean, you need it. You need to make money. So what it sometimes I think what people can misconstrue is that taking this proactive approach, could it risk the job? Could it stop this revenue from happening? And I think what this book kind of proves, and from the stories that we've heard, Drew, just time and time again, that no, a job well begun is half done. You could actually get this buttoned up before the nightmare, as we say. And like you said earlier, most subcontractors do not want to rock the boat, right? And, and we're, yes. we're in, a, in a, an environment right now, at least in, in San Antonio, I would imagine it's falling suit in most cities in, in Texas where the bid atmosphere is intense. There's a lot, everyone's trying to fill their backlogs. Some of the big boys are getting involved in some of the smaller contracts because they need to keep their crews busy. And whenever subcontractors are that low on of the list of about 17 other contractors, they're excited they finally got a job. So they do, you know, they have that feeling of like, we can't wait to get to work. And, you know, as soon as we can get that contract in, we can get the guys going and we can get it working. And But I, I feel like that they're kind of put in a situation that, you know, like you said, if we rock the boat, is that going to be an issue? And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they can make the decision to move on to the next bidder. What do you see as far, in your book, you mentioned that, you know, most general contractors are willing to negotiate. Like how, how do you, what, what do you suggest a subcontractor do to start negotiation? Well, I think first you need to evaluate what is your risk tolerance? How much risk are you willing to take? You know, I pointed out the most dangerous things that I, you know, some absolutely need to be changed, some you can negotiate on. Um, and so picking out your risk tolerance, how, how much of a risk you want to take. But and then again, if you take, if you go to the PM and you say, hey, this clause here that says I don't get paid until, you know, some event that I can't, happens, I can't, they, they don't even know that clause is in there. Mm. So saying, could you do that? I mean, I, I can't afford to finance this job. And just being real by, I'm, you don't want to hire a sub that's, that's not going to be able to follow your contract. And I'm telling you, I have an issue with this. And I'm not, you know, we need to, here, here's some language. I'll split the risk with you. Let's do something mm. in the middle. And they're, they'll, you know, because they've already chosen you. They've already gone through your stuff. They want to work with you. And so just being, putting it in an email and, and being as, forward as possible mm -hmm. about it yeah well and, and i think it's important too to point out on the bid phase of things that you know you would think that as a subcontractor you're like i could do that job you put put together your bid you submit it you're low you're awarded the contract well then if you don't really pay attention as to what was awarded that they could have some additions in there that you may not have been aware of right to where that kind of falls in that scope well that's what's interesting is y'all are going to tell i did my homework that the scope in the bid, what a lot of contractors believe is like, hey, this is what I bidded and this is what I excluded in my bid. And then sure enough, here it is, your attorney, Carolyn, telling you, you think it's excluded because it's in the bid, but really that scope plays first. Exactly. The bid never becomes part of the contract between the, between the GC and the sub. The only thing that controls your work is that scope. It does not matter if you excluded something in your bid because it's not even part of the documents. Mm -hmm. And so what I tell my clients is, you do the bid, you get the subcontract, look at that scope as if it were a new bid and make sure it matches. Because I've seen time and time again from a small $3,000 mistake to hundreds of thousands of dollars, what they, you know, they didn't review it. They figured they were hired to do their bid and it's not that way. And legally your bid never comes into the dispute. Like you come 
But I didn't bid that, and the first thing I'm like, well, what's your scope say? Because yeah. what you bid say doesn't really matter. Yeah, and, and what's great in the book, too, is that you you touch on some verbiage that is typically seen in these contracts, the, the ones that the, the verbiage you should really keep an eye out for that kind of puts you in a bad spot. But then you also give a suggestion as to what you redline and go back with. I yeah. just want to interrupt. Just the word indemnity, isn't this a big word in all these contracts? So straight from the attorney's mouth, what is, what does it mean? We're insurance risk guys, so we know, but I think it's important for anyone who's getting these agreements to really understand what that means and then what levels it plays in these contracts. Well, yeah, I mean, Debney is in every contract, right? And basically, no matter what's in the contract, you're going to be responsible for you, your guys, and the damage they cause or the damage your work causes, which is why it's so important to have insurance, especially whatever's required by the contract. I mean, that one's easy. You take the contract, you take it to your insurance guy and say, I need this. You know, it's and but from a legal standpoint, you're going to be responsible for your guys, any mistakes they make, your work, and any mistakes your work come from. But the important thing to understand about indemnity and insurance, there's no insurance you can buy to cover bad work, right? So whatever bad work happens, that's on you to fix. There's no insurance that'll cover that. Not for the contractor, not for the owner. It'll cover the results, like if there's a flood because a pipe burst, but not the bad work itself. I, I just want to go ahead and get this topic off the table because uh, me working in surety, <laughs> I love I loved the chapter because I, I, Carolyn and I have had this conversation. We were discussing before we press record um, that, we, you know, we had met before, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, um, referring some of our, our contractors over to her to, to help with some of these uh, legal issues and contract reviews. Subcontract bonds. And then I think the subcontract bonds and personal guarantee probably could have been one after the other, right? So because it's, it's kind of one and the same. Because when it comes to subcontract bonds, anytime you get into surety, contract surety, there's personal indemnification. Let's talk about indemnification. Um, that if there is a default, the surety company will step in and take care of it. But again, like you, like in the book, like we constantly say, surety is not insurance, right? So whenever you post those bonds, you're not. It's not there to protect you. It's there to protect the general contractor. Well, well that's the for. thing. A contractor thinks like, hey, I got a bond. So look, if shit hits the fan, someone's I'm gonna, covered. Yeah, someone's gonna write me a check just to like keep it going. Uh, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> it it <laughs> no. does not work that way. Okay. Well, with that, let's pivot to this because uh-huh. uh, there's something very interesting that you advocate for, which is about how you get paid, and this whole kind of chain of events that a lot of contracts have where if the owner doesn't pay, the sub doesn't get paid. Do you mind, like, diving into no, that? No, and, and, and I think it's important to note that just what that does is that it makes the person most financially least likely to be able to finance the project, financing the project, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're already putting out labor and materials and then waiting to get paid, which, fine, a normal payout, 25, 30 days is all right. But what happens if there's something up, you know, from the, you know, from the breakdown between the owner and the general, and there's no payment for 90 days? Can mm-hmm. you float that? And not only can you float that, but can you keep working? Because under your subcontract, you can't stop working. Yeah. And so I know that the general contractor is trying to mitigate the risk. But you can't put it all on the subcontractor. In the book, which is available on Amazon, by the way, um, there are, you know, some different ideas on how to negotiate so we can split the risk. You know, right. Pay me 50%, pay me, you know, pay me to file a lien or give me the provision. If you haven't been paid by the owner, it's not my fault that I can stop working. This is exactly why you don't want your like family attorney doing your contract law. This is your niche, Carolyn. And I love that there are actually ways that a little guy can leverage this contract to where it's something very acceptable for the GC, mm-hmm. but at the same time protects the bottom line. Yeah, and and I guess to kind of touch again on the on the the 
subcontract bonds. And, and a, a lot of times, I, I think that there's a lot of bad information that's that's given to these subcontractors. And I don't, I don't think that the magnitude of what they're signing is fully explained by the agents that they're working with. And I think that's, that's and in working with the city of San Antonio and some of the smaller contractors around around the city, that has become an actual reality is, you know, they're just getting really bad information. When it, when it comes to subcontractor, the bonding back side of things, I typically see that, uh, especially with the general contractor, contractor contractors that I work with, that it, that is a requirement coming down from their surety company for a couple reasons. One, it's a much larger project that they've really ever done before, so we got to make sure that we can spread that risk around a little bit. Um, uh, number two, it, it's a it's a very complex type of work. Rarely do and there there are some clauses or requirements that the uh, surety companies sometimes require where they say, well, any subcontractor you have come in that you award over $200,000, we're going to need to go ahead and bond them back. Normally, a, a, an agent could probably step in and say, hey, how about just along the critical path, right? So something that will delay that project. So if there's a failure along that point, that makes sense. To me, that makes a little bit of sense because at that point, they're skin in the game. We got to keep everything kind of rolling. Now, um, you know, when it comes to surety, we're not out there to, to put anybody out. You know, it, it really kind of falls back into what I just said is, is skin in the game along the way. To make everybody bond back doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. There, there's some underwriters that are going to listen to this and cringe. But it, it, to me, you know, just as long as, as we're covering the, the path of the contract of which we, we're getting it completed on time, I think that's really important. Now, whenever the subcontractors go and talk to their agents to get these bond, um, the surety programs set up, it's important they understand all that too. There's a, the contract involved with that, the general indemnification agreement. Read that thing. Understand what that is. We live in Texas, homestead state. Your home, your house, and your 401k are safe. Everything else is on the table. And if you don't want to read it, get on the phone, like a quick <laughs> conference call. Exactly. And I mean, there's really, literally, like you're saying that somebody can actually have a consultation with you to figure out what the problem is at no cost. Yeah, a consultation is free. Um, I do, like I said, a, a flat fee contract review. I think it's what it is. It's 15 pages. It's $550. And that comes with a contract review and, and an hour consultation to go over what it is and you don't even have to pay the retainer to do that you can just the first entry to my firm is you, you see that you see like how we work then we could go from there but um there's no reason not to right. i mean mm -hmm. the subcontractor institute has the classes which if you don't want to use me that's fine you i teach it there's more forms <laughs> there uh but there's a whole level of there's just yeah. and what i'm trying to do at the, i know the book title is somewhat obnoxious but i'm really trying to bring attention to the issue that they don't have to be this way. So well, contracts don't have to be this. You're way. trying to have these contractors stop getting screwed. <laughs> it's Literally, straight up. Yeah. Well, the problem is, is when you're a family business, and I'm now I'm just talking to you know my father owned an air conditioning company, but if my dad would have stepped on a financial landmine, that means my mom is st stepping in it also. I mean, just for the sure care of your family and your legacy, be proactive. Find the right people. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what our podcast is all about, which is you don't have to know it all, but you got to know the right people. It goes, it goes back to the core four. Again, a good construction lender, commercial lender, somebody that knows construction, a good construction CPA, not your tax CPA, a construction CPA, somebody that understands percentage of completion accounting. That's important. 
Uh, number three is a good lawyer, construction lawyer. Hello. Right? <laughs> and then number four is guys like Warren and I, we can take care of your insurance and your <laughs> yeah. surety. Which is very yeah. important, too. Very important, but too. But I have to say, like, I'm, I was part of this. I'm on a mission, too, that not all lawyers suck, right? Mm -hmm. no. We have a 24-hour turnaround. If you need to know if you're going to sign that lien waiver, I'll get back to you personally. I have email. You know, we are out there to help you and help you run a better business throughout the whole process, not just – and I, you know, my point is to keep you out of the courtroom and keep you in your business and not – well, here's, here's a concept to take on, too, subcontractors. And, and working with some of these guys, getting their surety programs put up. I know what, what profit margins you're running on your jobs. Build it, build the cost of $550 flat fee to get your contracts awarded within, within your job. Make the general pay for the review of his, of his own contract. Exactly. The thing that I love that you advocate for, and I think the book, to me, the, the value of this book, and Drew's the first one to bring it to my attention, but he said... What Carolyn is doing is she's providing more value to her clients than her clients could ever, you know, reciprocate. Because at the end of the day, all you can really do is invoice a client. The things that I've heard you advocate for, in addition to just all the contracts and the clauses, is you've said, why spend 300 hours in court for the principle of being right? When in reality, a really great attorney who cares about you is going to just want you to sidestep the whole dramatic event, come out with the least amount of expenses associated with the litigation, and ultimately use those dollars to grow your business. Exactly. Your time is so much better well spent in growing your business, not in a courtroom, not having deposition taken, not producing me every document known to man that you have ever touched that I now have to produce. <laughs> you know, it, it's, a, it's a non, it's a, you know, it's a, onerous process that takes time and then you go in the courtroom and let somebody else decide it and talk about nerve-wracking I mean it is it's the worst feeling where you yes you might not get everything you want but you're going to get more at the end of the day if you cut your losses come to a settlement and, and move on down the road and take that funds and grow it in your business right. you know what I'm saying yeah so Drew let's uh let's pull out the book I know you have a list of notes you really want to dive into contract law and you're really going to go Almost page for page, not really, but you can see the veins popping on my forehead. <laughs> thinking about the next topic, but let's do it. Let's let's pull the book out and like, yeah. why don't we go through these? I mean, you got a hit list. Dude, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, material and uh, discussion around pay when paid. We, I, I want to touch on that um, for the sake of it being pretty ridiculous in its own right. I mean, yeah, and you're right. I mean, you know, there's, you know, if the general general contractor isn't getting paid, how is he going to pay anybody else? And there's there's that, but. You do outline ways to work around that. Like, how, like, what do you suggest subcontractors do to deal with that? Um, yeah, okay, so there's, there's, before you sign the contract, I would try to negotiate something that's in the middle. You know, the general contractor's taking a risk by taking on the project, so are you, but let's split it. Pay me 50% of the pay app that I'm requesting if I'm the reason, if I'm not the reason you haven't been paid. Like, if I screwed something up, obviously I need to go back and fix it before I can get paid. Mm -hmm. But there's got to be some middle ground. You know, pay me 50% of the pay app or pay me to file a lien. If you're not getting paid and it's not your fault, then let me file a lien and it will help general contractor get paid. So let's have a, you know, a discussion before we sign it. We're talking about not, they're not wanting to rock the boat. Yeah. You want to you help, help you pay to file a lien? <laughs> yeah, reimburse me to file a lien. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of, it's just, it's not right for you to have to take the whole risk. And there shouldn't be, you know, there should be a split of the risk. But if you've already signed a subcontract with it in there, there is a letter that you can send to say, hey, if I'm not the reason that you're not getting paid, legally it can't be enforced against mm -hmm. me and so there's a copy of that letter at subcontractor institute that you can send it's i think it's after 
uh, 45 days after you submit your pay app, you can send this letter saying, hey, I don't want this enforced against me, and legally it can't be as long as you're not the cause. We should mention that there is some additional uh, support and forms that you can look at uh, at the subcontractorinstitute.com. Uh, this is Carolyn's website to, it has all, I think every almost every chapter has some sort of a reference to that to specific forms and verbiage that, that you can include. So and again, you know, uh, pay when pay clause was hit pretty hard on Carolyn's podcast tour. So if you want to know more about that, there's actually full episodes for like an hour hours of time on just <laughs> dedicated. That. Yeah. Pay when pay so, uh, but the one thing that got me that I thought was really interesting was. Um, and I've seen it before on contracts. You had, I guess, there's basically an example of every kind of lawsuit scenario within what she's discussing, which I think is really important for anyone reading to to really dive into. Like, what what is, how is this applicable to me in in the real world? Well, there's great examples in there of, of cases that Carolyn has has dealt with, but um, the prior work and field conditions. So you will be responsible for the work of a, of the subcontractor that came in before you. You will. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that, right? So you, you come in, you're you're a painter, and uh, the the drywall is put up, and maybe the drywall contractor uh, didn't float it right or his something. His tape and float guy just had a bad day. Yeah, and you know, you come in, you're like, you know what? I think that if we if we just go ahead and paint it, it'll be okay. Well, come to, we we know what happens when tape and float tape and float is not done correctly. Eventually, what happens? It it, it turns into a mess. Well, later on, you're going to get a call. And they're going to come in and you're basically taking on the liability of that contractor that put up that drywall and tape and float. Even though you're just the painter, you took on that, taken on that. Uh, that liability. Well, you're a painter that didn't read the contract. <laughs> <laughs> of course, their attorney wants you to be liable for everything that happened before you ever stopped on the job site. But so, Carolyn, Carolyn, give us an example of, of a situation where you've had to deal with something like that. I mean, the paint is, is, a, is a is another great example of something like that. Um you know, it, it stacks on itself. So, like, if the, you know, I had one where uh, the plumbing wasn't put in the rice plates in the concrete and the plumber just made it work. Well, of course, it was a huge defect, but it was a defect in the slab. So now that became the plumber's fault and they had to, you know, tear out the concrete, redo the plumbing and put everything the way it should have been. So it stacks. And so you find even the guy at the very end and now everybody, you know, that was below is now responsible for it and mm -hmm. so and what I'm, I'm not saying that you don't have a duty to inspect before you start and point things out that I think you do I think you have that obligation to say hey I can't do my job right because this is wrong right but what happens if you miss something you know like something's hidden you don't see it and or then if you're a plumber and you're or you're, you're a foundation guy you're not a plumber you don't know if, if this stuff is wrong exactly <laughs> exactly and it still builds upon and now it's now it's your problem and right. so i think you know that some of the suggestions language i have in there is yes i'll do a duty to inspect and i'll let you know but if i miss something then i'm not taking you know um liability for the guy before me mm -hmm. well i mean i think and what's great about this too is you know when reading this you know you can cut you can feel it coming on every every chapter right so it starts off really subtle and then it starts diving in and you can feel like oh no you know, here it comes. And, and a lot of it is, is very much process driven, you know, and I, one, one thing that I'd you know, spoken to a couple of people since, since reading the book was that you should really go through this thing chapter by chapter, break out each one individually and then create your own process based around this, right? Everything from starting with the bid, going through the process to close, close out the job. And, uh, there's, I think every circumstance in here is just, a uh, 
just a bad mistake by the subcontractor. And even the small subcontracts, I've seen all of those things in there. So you just got to, it's kind of like when I get a subcontract, I'm like, okay, I'm on a hunt. Where am I going to find these things? You know, the prime contract being part of the contract is, I hate that, but that's always in like the first few pages. Right. You'll find it incorporated. Um, and so, you know, usually if you ask for a copy of that, they'll take it out or they'll give you a redacted copy. They don't, first off, they usually don't know it's in there. Mm -hmm. um, but having you be liable for a contract you've never even seen. Mm -hmm. I'd, like the first time I read that, I'm like, who would agree to that? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and then, okay, so it's in, you want to leave it in there? Then give me a contract. Give me a copy of your prime contract. Or, or then, <laughs> then comes a term, oh, it's a standard contract. There is no what standard does that contract. Mean? <laughs> like I said, the first rule about subcontract is that there are no rules. And right. whatever you sign will be used against you. And right. if you're listening to this and you're going like, holy crap, I've been doing it wrong all this time. <laughs> it's not too late. No, and here's the thing is that, you know, a little pushback here and a little pushback there, you'll be you know, so much better than not doing anything at all just to put yourself in a better position. Yeah, I mean, you, you make a good point on the um, the prime con the reference to the prime contract because I, I see that more often than not. That's normally the case. I mean, is, is it a standard protocol for contractors to ask for the prime? The only reason why it's standard protocol in a subcontract is nobody said no. Right. Or nobody said, I want a copy. Mm -hmm. uh, if we would start asking for a copy or saying, hey, you guys, it's really unreasonable for you to hold me responsible to a contract that I have never even seen. And so they're either going to have to give you a copy or take it out. You know right. What I'm and, and it goes into the chapter on liquidated damages, which yeah. is really important too, because a lot of times you don't realize something, sometimes in the subcontract, it's not even listed in there. Right. And you absolutely need to know what your liquidated damages are or yeah. delay damages, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those are, those are mentioned very clearly in the prime, but not at all in sub, right? And I don't think it's unreasonable to have all your, what you want from me sub in one document, in, in the subcontract, you know, subcontract and, the, and all the plans and specifications as well. But why should I be held? And what it, well, I said this in the book, but what it is, is like an attorney's catch-all. If I happen to forget everything, I'm throwing in the kitchen okay. sink, well, and so here it is. Let's circle the wagons around this for a listener that might just be driving right now. You know, <laughs> pay attention. What we're talking about right now is that you have your subcontractor contract, but in there it's saying that you've agreed to everything in the prime. And what we're talking about right now is you need to know what that prime says because you're actually agreeing to it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it, make it part of your process. Like, if, and like Carolyn said, normally it's stated very clearly at the, at the top of the contract that this subcontract is going to be focused around, or like you're going to be responsible for what's on the prime. Whenever you see that, immediately ask for for the prime, right? And like you said, sometimes they'll take they'll take it out of the subcontract. Sometimes they'll give you a redacted copy of of the prime. Um, but it's important that you do read through and, and understand what kind of liabilities you're, you're diving into. Uh, you know, I've, I've even, you know, there, there's even been cases where there's multipliers of liquidated damages that are, that are hidden. Um, uh, this, so you have the prime liquidated damages and then you'll find multipliers within the subcontract that it, it, when you go back and read the prime, it may say $500 a day, but then the multiplier will multiply it two or three times. and It'll be worded in a way. Um, there's no specific numbers stated that it's a per day or they'll, they'll it'll, it'll be stated that it's five hundred dollars per day and a lot of people that are skimming looking for the liquidated damages five hundred dollars a day and they move on mm -hmm. well read into it and understand what's there it's extremely important especially when it comes to any sort of public work transportation airport work 
those aren't $500 a day liquidated damages people. Those are, there's a reason why there's high, high liquidated damages on those because time is money for those cases. So it's not like, like private, private jobs. Well, and that's why when you go in with a bid or when you sign the subcontract, make sure the schedule is something that you can actually do. Don't think you're going to be a superhuman and fi finish it in some record time that you never have before. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you, it will cost you if you overpromise. Yeah, and then we kind of dive into the. It, 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 you do mention in the book that uh, this is going to take in a whole other book because it truly is. <laughs> um, you know, when to file a lien, what, what to do to file a lien, um, what are your rights within filing a lien. Texas, in my opinion, is one of the worst states when it comes to that. Whereas you actually have some states, I think it's North Carolina, where you can actually write a claim on a napkin and turn it in and it's considered a, a valid claim. But um, in Texas, there's there's a process. So uh, can you kind of summarize what that, like let's say I'm a subcontractor, I'm not getting paid, uh, what, what do I do? Okay, so the most important thing you can do is notice. Notice often and early. Now there's specific timelines, and I do have a second book coming out specifically on this that has like timelines that shows you everything you're supposed to do. But what I can tell you is if you haven't been paid in 60 days, you need to, you need to take action. You need to send a notice. And notice is key. Certified mail, you have to take it to the post office and get it stamped because that's the only way you can mm -hmm. prove it. Be very leery of online lien services, especially ones that don't differentiate between states because every state is different. Like you said, Texas is one of the most onerous ones. We don't have a pre-lien notice, but if you are our sub, a sub-sub, the first move you need to take is the 15th day of the second month, mm -hmm. which like, it's like you're, we're in February. So if you're working in February, no matter when, the 1st or the 28th, um, it's February, March, April 15th would be your first notice to the GC. Mm -hmm. And this is on a commercial project because it's different per project and then you'd have to send another letter in um in april mm -hmm. to both the gc and the owner so there is a whole process but what i can tell you is knowing your subcontract is one part can you imagine the freedom you would have if you knew you could secure the funds you're owed peace of mind which is what a lien does right mm -hmm. regardless of what the subcontract says you could still secure that you're owed. But don't be wrong, if you're not owed it under the subcontract, you can't have a lien for it. So mm -hmm. you can't do bad work and then lien for it. That won't work. And now instead of just having the general contractor be liable to you on a breach of contract, you now have a claim against the owner, which is a lien claim, which is a very strong claim, which is why there are a lot of high punishments if you don't do it right, mm -hmm. like $10,000, the other side's attorney's fees. Um, yeah, so it is a dangerous, to, like I won't file, a lien that I know is invalid. Right. I had a client come lie to me about when he did the work mm. and he just got $100,000 of attorney's fees award against him. Mm. And I didn't know. So I didn't know until we were already in the litigation. Right. So what I'm saying is knowing it is so powerful because if you do it right, you're basically unstoppable. Yeah, and I, I think just the way I try to describe it is that you know, you gotta file rights to the money that you're owed, right? And you know, they're, they're gonna push the boundary. Right. And, and kind of get there. So but help us understand the difference between there's there's filing and then there's filing a bond claim. All right. So um, there's well, there's a couple different types of bonds, too. So you have, you know, bonds on public works, which in Texas is always required. If a juicy is going to work on a public works project, they're going to have a bond. And so then you're going to be required as a sub to have bond back, most likely mm -hmm. on a public works project, which is expected. But like you said, bond is not insurance. So in the book, some protections you can bring into your contract to protect you if you have to get a bond. Um, there's also the bonds on private work projects, which have some limiting powers on your lien claims. So the next book will dive all into the different kinds of bonds, but it is um, something you need to know. And 
like I said, at all costs, know what you need to have to have a valid bond claim mm -hmm. and a valid lien claim. Bond claims are, are normally on the same timelines as liens, so that person in the sub-sub situation would still have to send notice to the GC the 15th day of the second month, whether it's not, whether it's a bonded job or a lien job. Right. It's just the third month notice, instead of filing a lien, you send a notice of claim, which mm -hmm. has to be verified to the bond company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it's fascinating. And I know that, again, there's going to be an underwriter listening to this who's going to be calling me going, what the hell are you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> Tell about a file of bond claim. But, I mean, I, I feel like that's what, you know, kind of Warren, what Warren and I are all about, right? So, like, you know, we want to just kind of how you have that same desire to to help those guys out and at least help them understand. Like, you know, you got to understand your rights coming into this. One of the big main reasons why subcontractors go out of business is because they can't get paid. On top of that, Sometimes what happens, at least in our business, where we're actually reading insurance contracts and comparing them to the subcontract, is we will find things by doing our due diligence where there are straight in black and white, not even in fine print, it's in bold, but it's excluding certain types of jobs. And I'm talking about, um, for an example, we'll work with a roofer and right there in the insurance contract it's saying, there's no public works that mm -hmm. are going to be covered. No residential properties that have more than four stories are excluded. And so what we find, you know, is that when we get into this, that this is the work the contractor's doing. Who would sell them that policy? Exactly. No, wrong. And at that point, they're willing to pay more to get the right coverage. They just don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they're basically naked. They're paying thousands of dollars for zero coverage and, and what they do. Mm -hmm. And so what's, you know, one of my favorite things, and this is just kind of the aura of everything that we do. And obviously you're the same way, Carolyn. We work for the client, not the insurance carrier. We want the products to perform. We, where we get our high fives is when shit hits the fan and people get paid versus not. And so, you know, that's, just, you're, you're fighting the same stereotype I'm fighting in my industry. Right. Is that we're only here to collect money and, and bill for ourselves, And that, you know, that's what general idea is about insurance agents. Right. <laughs> and boy, when you experience the alternative to this, when you experience having a really great. You're like, whoa, yeah. what, do you, what do you want? This, is, like this can't be me. real. Yeah. <laughs> because usually what happens is you feel this obligation to like pay an executive, a CFO to like handle the stuff that's not your strong point. Mm -hmm. But going back to your team, like that's what we advocate for, having the right people. And, and you, as you obviously know, they're the right people are out there. You just got to find them. Right. You know? Yeah. And in more, I mean, maybe this is probably a good opportunity to kind of talk about what you're working on as far as the, the subcontractor verticals that you're, you're building. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the, here's the thing is I'll use painting as an example. If you just go to the, the local captive agent on the corner who writes 99% home and auto and you say, Hey, I got a painting business. Can you insure it? The problem with this scenario is they don't really understand the, dif the differentials in are you an indoor painter or an outdoor painter? What's the overspray clause? Like what happens when you're spraying the side of somebody's house and, you spray and it, a car. You, yeah, you turn a Mercedes Benz into a polka dot, you know, zebra. Is that why you drove a minivan? Up here? <laughs> <laughs> the verticals and what we are like, this is what I love so much about this interview with Carolyn is we're talking about niches. We're talking about people that know your business, that aren't trying to be like a, uh, what do they call that? A jack of all trades. It's nice to dive into product knowledge, dive into contract knowledge, and more importantly, have somebody show you, hey, these are the four possibilities. But guess what? When you're looking at a million dollar general liability limit, 
it's not all the same. This one's excluding the work you're doing, and yeah, this exactly. one includes it. Exactly. I mean, how valuable is that? Definitely need to get your card so I can. <laughs> well, man, so I'm, I'm, I'm flipping through, like, the summary on the back end. I'm just like, God, like, we're, like, 45 minutes in, and I'm like, I have so much more I want to talk <laughs> we, about. This, we can, I, we can I, always come back. I, yeah, we may need to do, like, a part two or something. But uh, there was a, a mention in there of trust funds, right? And uh, when people hear what that. What does that mean? Yeah. When, when, when you read into it, like, you're just like, what? I'm like, imagining one of those kids you see. Out like in California. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's got dreadlocks. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, yeah. He, he's like a soul surfer or something. <laughs> but um, so the, uh, explain how trust fund laws factor into this whole thing. So the important thing is that trust funds work both ways, right? Okay, so when the owner pays the general, the general has a legal duty to pay the people that worked on the job, the subs and whatnot. Well, when the sub get pays, if he owes money to the people that worked, you know, labor and material, he has the duty to pay those people. That Those are considered trust funds. Those funds on that project need to be used to pay the people that you owe money to. You can't use them to pay another guy on another project. I mean, you could, but not until you've paid everybody that you owe for that particular project. After that's done, then you're cool. Do you do you recommend? I really don't know the answer to this question. Do you recommend um, a business owner having two different banking accounts? One that's called like a trust account for this kind of you a thing? can. It's not legally required, but if there was a question of trust fund violation, it's way easier. Now I say that trust fund violation doesn't happen all the time. You like claims of it because I don't think people realize what it is. But it is, you could have a trust fund claim, regardless of a lien claim, regardless of a breach of contract claim. So you could say, hey, general contractor or owner, if an owner got funds from the bank, you were paid these funds for this project, and you went to Tahiti and said, mm-hmm. you can have a claim against the owner and the trust fund for that. Mm-hmm. And so you can recover, it's another way to recover, because those are funds for people that have worked on the project. You know, in my 20 years almost of owning and operating insurance agencies we have in our business that's like a trust fund is our premiums you know you have clients paying premiums it's not really the agency's money it's just supposed to go from one pocket to the other and so think taxes for a minute if you keep your books tidy if you consider doing what we're talking about now which is potentially putting all these trust funds in an account that really you could just point whether it's the IRS or or really any regulator that needs to look hey, that's the account. Everything in there is money going from one place and directly to a cost of goods. And two things I want to point out. If you spend all the funds on that project and they're not, they're not enough to pay everybody, that's not a trust fund violation because you've used all the funds. The fact or not, if you didn't have enough money is a different story. But there is criminal penalties too, mm. if it's over $500. They could, and I, I don't know, I haven't seen that one in action yet, but um, there are, it is available. And this goes into professional liability, believe it or not. I mean, there are products that make sure that you, as a professional, doing things that are really your responsibility, how great is it to know there's even coverages for discovery, for you to basically prove your case. Um, They exist, and there's conversations to have, and there really is a solid way to be bulletproof. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's priceless, you know, to have all those components together. I think we can kind of dive into change orders. Right. Because I, I think that you know, even when it pertains to like trust fund law violations, whenever there's I, I, I probably see it happen a little bit more common when there's a change order, like a major increase. Right. And uh, the documentation of it. So, um, you know, we had a, a client of ours go through the same deal where, you know, he the documentation of it 
is really what put him in, in jeopardy much further down the line. And, um, you know, it was it, it was just a material change. It wasn't a, a, an amount change, right? And uh, when the default came down, you know, because they were picking the, the, con the contract apart, um, he put himself, he was in a bad, put himself in a bad position because of the documentation of it. So, and, and you do dive in the book, like what forms of communication count. Um, now it's important to be very thorough on that. Again, your website is a great resource to kind of dive in into some of that. Um, so uh, even like you know, documenting phone calls and text messages and emails, and a lot of people don't realize that you know having an answer for everything is extremely important. Um, but how do you how do you suggest? A, let's say they're on a job like I'm a subcontractor. I'm on a job site. You know I'm doing the the framing, and then they ask me if I can do the drywall. Um, what, what do you suggest is the next move for that subcontract? I mean, try to get a new subcontract issued for the second second separate scope. But if you can't, at the very least, get an email. I prefer email over text because it's way easier to prove that it actually happened. I don't know if you've ever tried to print out your text yeah, messages right. before, but that's that's a whole other disaster. Yeah, here's three inches of content. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like worst case scenario, yeah. yes. Or, you know, P.O. book in your truck, you know, something that shows written approval. And then the other thing that is always forgot when you get a change order is requested extra time. Mm -hmm. Because you need to add that onto the schedule. If not, that's where delay damage. If you're like, you gave me like $20,000 for extra work. You should have known it would take me an extra week. Don't assume anything. If it's not in writing, it doesn't count. And you bring up a really good point because change order, right? Let's say let's say that you get the, okay, you do you're like okay, I'm going to listen to Drew and Warren and Carolyn, and I'm going to make sure we document this change order. Where they document the change order, they get the increase done. They're like yes, but they forget to increase their time to get it done. Yeah. So they fall within their subcontract with the same amount of time as you had to do the framing. Well, this and then is, the delay damages kick in because you didn't finish right. it on time. And so all that extra money is now out the window. Right. Well, and what my little favorite thing about all this is, is that when you know, I'm going to give you an example, when you know your workers' compensation rates also, now you're even able to kind of put the expense of this $5,000 project. In other words, you could take that work comp rate and know what your, your cost of your labor is. And while you're, putting maybe an on-the-fly proposal together, you could actually job cost it pretty strong. Yeah, if you know all that, because that's a great point. I have a nightmare example of, of a small subcontractor that kind of got pulled into a project, and it, it was just this small private work job. I think they were building like a like a doctor's office or something, and we get a call because they're, they're, they're in need of some serious trouble. They were hired to do the foundation, and um, then they're like, the general's like, I like what you're doing in here. Can you do the framing? And they're like, yeah, we can get a crew. And they said they do the framing. And then, oh, this is a great job. Can you can you do electrical? Yeah, we can do electrical. And how, how about the HVAC? Yeah, we can get somebody in here. Do you and play then, piano? <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. So here's the thing. They get almost completely done. All, the, all, all that's left is drywall and finish out. And the the general says, where's your punch list? And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, they weren't as as paperwork sophisticated to have their their punch lists and processes and in even pay apps in line. So um, within what the contract stated and what the law where he was at, it's like, well, we hired somebody else to come and finish. So yeah, you thanks. get you get paid for the foundation if you're lucky. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so it, and it's important to know, like, look, the stuff we're talking about, whether we're talking about the contract side of things or just talking about the processes and procedures to protect your business there's really nothing new under the sun here 
you actually speaking to someone like Carolyn is going to allow you to actually know what is a real way to do it on the job mm-hmm. site. What, what, you know, would an iPad solve this problem? Having those just the little good measures could change your life and change your peace of mind. Well, I mean, re- reading the book and like, think about your processes when you're, when you're reading the book and make note and be honest with yourself that I need to change this yeah. because I'm exposed completely yeah. on every step of the way, yeah. you know, cause the majority of them are, I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff in here that I was reading that was, you know, it's, it's very clever on the negotiation of the contract. I'm just like, well, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we've been doing this a long time and if there's ever anything that's kind of a punch to the gut is when you see a good, hardworking, honest contractor, who is in financial demise mm-hmm. for a really dumb reason. Yeah, exactly. And it feels for them that their whole world is caving in. And it's not just their business. It's their family. Family. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, it, and so many of these are small business, our family oh, businesses, yeah. the husband and the wife, or even extended family. And, you know, I've been there. I know what that's like. And they're all looking to the boss where it's payday, you know, regardless of, you know, why you haven't gotten paid, you right. still have to make payroll. Right. And you still, whether they're family or not, you still want to make Diving in later, a little bit later in the book, uh, we go into warranties, <laughs> and that's pretty interesting too because you know a lot of guys, you know, they have their factory warranty of whatever whatever it is they're installing, which is a pretty standard place, um, and then you have your your typical, uh, you know, for X amount of time, I'll come in and fix it. Mm-hmm. So when but when you read into the contract, so let's say in the subcontract it says you'll you'll provide a one year warranty upon substantial completion of the entire project. Correct. So if you are a foundation guy, exactly. And you finish and you're like, okay, paid up. I'm done. I'm out. Right. And then, you know, the, the project continues to go and you're like, I, I figured I'm done. Well, then something happens like, like six months after substantial completion, which could technically be a couple years after, after you completed done. and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you're called mm-hmm. up. Yep. And so that's the main thing to know is that it's not when your work is over, it's when the project's over. And, you know, like substantial completion is like at the very end of the project. So knowing that going in and that your potential exposure can be much longer than what you originally thought. Fascinating. Something as simple as what does the word completion mean? What does substantial completion completion mean? I say CFO, you know, uh, is a pretty good indicator. Uh, Or when they file the completion affidavit. Right. In which they're, so you can watch it there. They're trying to get that done earlier to cut off lien timelines. So if you, all liens, regardless of when work's been performed, has to be filed within 30 days of final completion. So the GC and the owner will file an affidavit of completion. And Mm so for that reason, they can cut off lien timelines. But if you're looking at it from the warranty perspective, they could somewhat limit themselves. You can't play both sides of that. Right. You know yeah. And I, I, I jumped ahead a little bit, but I was, uh, I was I was really kind of fascinated in the conditional and unconditional waivers of lien, and um, which is extremely important. And and the, the example you can give you, in the book is actually. Really, I was going to say, could you use it in a sentence? <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the example you give is great, right? Because it's like you know I've, I've come across this before, where you know they're holding final payment to close out the project of a subcontractor. Like we'll get you your payment, and just just sign this unconditional waiver sign this, sign this, and we'll get you paid. But and there, there is some work you got to do internally. Like if, and like if you follow this book verbatim and like, let's say like you've been doing work for this general contractor for a long time, 
I mean, come on, you know, the, you use some some common sense judgment here. I mean, you're not going to go in and redline all of a sudden redline everything he's got. Like, let's let's maintain the relationship. But if you're working with somebody that's brand new and they're pushing this unconditional waiver of lien, they're basically you're waiving all of your rights to payment by signing that thing mm. with the promise of payment. Whoa! How are you going to sign that if you haven't been paid yet? Yeah. And it says clearly at the top in bold, if you have not been paid, use a conditional lien waiver. Explain I, that and to I can't, your spouse. I, I can't come in later and send an intent to lien and be like, oh, my client wasn't paid. But clearly They're they, like, they swore under oath that they were. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you got to understand, that book is written from the point, I, I don't see a good project. I only see the ones that are messed sure. up. And so I'm going to, you know, these are all the things that I've seen go wrong that I'm going to warn you about that you know. That, you know. If you know what the risk is, you can make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm looking for. Please read into what a conditional and unconditional waiver of lien is. And, and again, Carolyn's website is great. There's examples. There's things you can use to help you at least have that in place. Read through it. Understand it. Put it in your process. Well, right? and the forms in Texas are standard. So right. there shouldn't be anything outside the, the four that are there. Sign and submit the right one. Yeah. That's so all I'm saying. Um, so let's talk about default and termination for convenience. You know, that that's something that's always been kind of tricky for me to really kind of navigate because again it's one of those things where you don't want to rock the boat and it's it's almost on every single contract I these agree. days so like what is that process what does that mean okay i mean How like of, of all the things you're going to rock the boat this is good to know about but i if i wouldn't push too hard right um <laughs> The termination for convenience clauses basically means you can be fired for any reason or no reason at all. And where that comes into play is in two parts, right? It's either where I see it more, most of the time is that you've been hired, you got the subcontract, you haven't started work yet, and they find somebody cheaper. They terminate you for convenience. Mm -hmm. You don't have that same right as a subcontractor. If you realize, oh, shit, that I, overbid, I underbid this job, I can't terminate for convenience. Mm -hmm. I don't have that right. I have to move forward with what I signed up for. Right. The other way I see it is that if they wrongfully terminate you. Like they don't give you the required notice of default. They don't give you, you know, the chance to cure. They'll just say, okay, it doesn't matter. I terminated you for convenience anyways. Because if they terminate you wrongly, you could sue them for breach of contract. Right. And so they take that away by the termination for convenience. But you, you mentioned in the book too of like trying to negotiate in some more power on your end to where you can do kind of the same. And so that's why I recommend is to try to get it taken out. If not, make it mutual. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, you have the right to terminate for convenience. So do I. And you know, I've seen it try. They try to sell you that. Oh, it's it's a better thing to be terminated for convenience. I don't know. I don't know how. Terminate is normally a bad word. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's better like, to be uh, terminated for convenience than for cause. They always yeah. say, but I don't. I don't understand the difference because legally it has zero difference, mm -hmm. right? I don't understand your word ninja work. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm pretty smart, and I don't know what you're saying. Right. <laughs> So, in the, so let's say let's say we get defaulted. Okay. Um, we know what's coming next, right? All the all the costs and yes, having to deal yes. with that, and then attorneys' fees are you're typically Correct. liable for all that too. Correct. You know, th there is great advice in here as far as how to handle that, but you may not be able to recover any attorneys' fees you have to pay to enforce the sub the subcontract. Correct. The, the current way that most subcontracts are written are all the attorneys' fees are only recover one sideable, which means the general contractor, whoever you signed, can recover their attorneys' fees, but they're no provision for you to. Mm -hmm. uh, don't be wrong, you can still recover your attorneys' fees if you file a lien or if you for some other thing or you give the thirty days notice, um, unless there's this weird quirk in the law currently that if you're if a company is an LLC and you don't have a written agreement for recovery of attorney's fees on a breach of contract, you can't. Mm. And so if, you're, if you are subcontracting with a GC that's an LLC, and you don't have a provision in there to recover your attorney's fees, if you have to sue them, you will not be able to recover them at all. 
So I know about that one. Yeah, it sounds shady. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all pretty shady. Yeah. But uh, the main thing I wanted to point out in termination and default is that a notice of default doesn't have to be a certified letter. It doesn't even have to be an email. It could be a text message saying pointing out something that you're not doing. That could be brought up later on as a notice of default. Yeah, so, so the, you do go into that in the book too, um, where I mean the paradigm sucks. I mean it's <laughs> like if you don't get this right, you have you have the underhand. Well, here's the thing: like if if even if someone whispers default on your job site, you respond. Oh, exactly. Don't don't leave it. Don't say I have an insurance bond that's going to cover this. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> that's the worst that. two words to put exactly. together. I don't care if it's a text message or an email. Just respond. Okay, I see your point, or I disagree because just have the paper trail is yeah. priceless. Be very clear because you know in the daily reports that backs that up too. Because what I said later on is is not worth anything. What's very encouraging is that the difference between being kind of in the negative of all of this and just making a few easy decisions to be, you know, to be in the right mm -hmm. is just a couple, it's just having a different habit. The stuff that you're asking the, the client to do isn't really like l laborious. Mm -hmm. like, like we said at the start of this was that, you know, the, the contracts, the, the lawyers that are, that are drafting these, these, contracts, I mean, it's forever changing, right? Okay. So when I feel like whenever the industry kind of picks up on what they're doing, they change it. Correct. And, then, and it's, it's sometimes it's moving a, a comma and changing the word. Or the new bit. one, anything that is what um, reasonably inferred. Reasonably inferred. What the oh, hell is that? that okay, so the new sentence I've been seeing in subcontracts, here are the contract docs, the prime, the, the plans, and then a sentence that says, and anything that can be reasonably inferred therefrom. Whoa. If it's in writing, you shouldn't have to reasonably infer right. anything. And that one has got to go because you know what that is? That's an open checkbook for everything they forgot to put in the plans and specs. Seriously, seriously. Uh, and that one's pretty easy to spot. And I'm seeing it more and more. And the wow. word reasonably is so subjective. Uh, inferred. <laughs> I mean, come on. This is a written contract. I mean, Nothing that's should as have bad to be inferred. As insurance bonds. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. But uh, so, uh, last bit here uh, dispute resolution. So, uh, I, I have seen some pretty interesting cases with contracts that I've, I've worked with in the past to where. You know, when you read through that section of your contract, that whole portion is designed and built around, even the venue um, is built around the best circumstance for the party that you're signing the contract to, right? So if, let's say you have an out-of-town GC where I've had a, a, a subcontractor enter into a contract with a, a let's, let's say, a, a GC from the Northeast, and uh, an issue happens, uh, and the process begins, well... They're all mitigation. Everything is taking place in North Carolina. Exactly. <laughs> so not, not only are you having to deal with everything, but you are not in your realm of understanding anything. And you better get your frequent flyer model. With something, <laughs> you know, because and that's probably not going to be reasonably inferred. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, definitely not. I keep referring back to the book. Read the damn thing. It's three ninety nine on on Amazon for the digital. Copy. I paid three ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So so go ahead and re like I would keep it with you. I'm actually making it a requirement for uh, my whole team to understand this thing and, and be, familiar be very with familiar it. with it. Right. So when it comes to dispute resolution, mm -hmm. it, and I guess it comes down to personal flavor, doesn't it? Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's some things like I used to not favor arbitration because the cost was so 
high up front and it is a lot more, but you get there so much. You might pay more up front, but you get there so much faster, mm -hmm. especially now with COVID mm -hmm. and trying to do things online with the courts. You're, you were a year out for trial. Now you're mm -hmm. two years. And the fees that can be racked up in that two-year period are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So right now, arbitration's getting scheduled anywhere for six months, right? And so that's way faster. Although it's like $3,000 filing fees as opposed to $350, it's, I find that it's w worth it. And because, and then you'll have somebody that's familiar with your field, usually construction, deciding your case. And so make sure the venue's right, though. Like, mm -hmm. you know, wherever the project is, is where the venue should be, which is fair, right? right? You know, because GC's coming here, even if they're from out of state, they're coming to work here, subs coming to work here, that's, a, that's mutual ground, right? right. And um, so I think that's the mo most important thing is just where is it at? You can make either one work. I prefer, you know, um, arbitration just because it gets there faster mm. it is more expensive on the front end and so sometimes it can already get the sub out of the dispute because you're talking with attorney's fees ten thousand dollars off the bat to file an arbitration and then you talk about going to court too so i mean normally that's it's cheaper to file mm -hmm. right yes. but then there's an extended time period and, and people need to really take in consideration what their time is worth number one and then uh, what the discovery looks like. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, anything. Anything is open for fair game. And, and the thing you don't understand is, like, the most benign email you sent, the other side can twist it around to make it look like. And it's like, get ready to have somebody comb through all your stuff and make it say what you didn't say. Oh, <laughs> and, and you're just sitting there so frustrated. That's not what that's yes, not what they're interpreting. Not, exactly. But, I mean, that's what attorneys are trained to do, right? Mm. And so, but I'm telling you, you you'd much rather spend your time in, um, which is why one of the best things before you go to our arbitration or litigation is mediation which is the parties come together with a neutral party and try to look at the strengths and weaknesses now don't be wrong both sides leave pissed off but it's done and they've decided it yeah. and we can go on with our lives and we've and whatever it is we've learned from it yeah and i guess one last bit for me is um when it, a lot of times these situations come up a lot of times just because of bad communication i agree and Sometimes the mediation allows them to be like, okay, we're breaking down this communication channel and we're going to sit across from each other. We're going to talk this thing out. We're not going to agree on this, exactly. uh, but we're at least you're going to know where I stand. I'm going to know where you stand. And a lot of times you can come to a, a middle ground somewhere and be like, you know what? And, and pride, put pride aside, Exactly. you know, like you don't want to be right so bad that you put yourself out of business. Cause that's really the case. Well, cause once you open that can of litigation or whatever it is, you open yourself up to counterclaims and things you cannot get out of. And once you open that, you can't, mm -hmm. you can't just walk away. Once you start a lawsuit and you decide to change your not, if you've been sued back, you can't just leave it. And then you're talking about, you know, I had a client, a great example. He had a $5,000 lien on a residential project. He was going to let it sit, 5000 bucks, whatever. He gets sued. Mm. And they claim all these claims of bad work. And so we, we, for as long as possible, we do nothing. We're the defendant. We try to convince the client to do a mutual walkway. The other side won't do it. They want to pay, pay $10,000, which the client won't do. It ends up going to trial. We're the defendant. We got sued. We win. We get our $5,000. It cost $60,000 in attorney's fees to get there. The judge gives my client 40000 of the 60000 Wow. And it's not that I didn't do the work. It's not that it wasn't real work. It just didn't sound right to her. So Yeah. Man. And so, you know, and it's like That's crazy. You almost would have been worth paying the ten thousand. And I know how ridiculous that sounds. It does sound ridiculous, but look at the alternative. He's gonna pay me sixty and get back he's gonna be minus plus all his time and dealing oh, with this goodness. stuff and 
definitely all goes back to it's the front end where you can really avoid a lot of these pitfalls. For somebody wanting to just work with you, like going like, hey, I don't even want to read the book. I really just want someone to like read this contract, make some suggestions. What's the process to work with your firm? Uh, Chromie's Law Firm website has got, uh, you can call us from there or send us an email uh, to, you know, $550. We'll review a subcontract that's 15 pages and under with notes and all the warnings and some suggested language. And then you can decide after that if you want to negotiate it or you can hire us from there on. Or if you don't want to hire my firm right away, Subcontractor Institute, I teach all 20 chapters and there's additional forms in there so you could really key it up for your your department, whoever does your subcontracts to know what to look out for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always a resource. But um, yeah, I'm, we're super easy to work with. Make a phone call and then uh, we're... Well, I think that's what's important too, to just have options for engagement, right? You know, how right. far do you want to take it? And I'm sure it'll be very clearly defined on what your options are. Well, and I would think, and, I, and I'm, I'm guessing here, right? But I would think if I'm a GC and a subcontractor has made it known that their attorney is reviewing a few things and wants me to like make a couple modifications. In my opinion, I think that my takeaway would be this is a very responsible subcontractor. And that's what it is most of the time. It's like, we're not pushing to get like, oh, we want everything or we're not going to work with you. No, this is a negotiation. And you know, I think they respect you from the point of, okay, you've read this. Credibility. Exactly. There, you know, you've read this, you know what's in here, and you know, we're gonna get some, but not all. Yeah, but that's the negotiation. Well, well, I think I guess we did it. I mean, we could make this a two hour episode. I, I, I could keep going. <laughs> um, you know, we're almost an hour and 15 in, and you know, for, for those that are probably driving, they can go back through this, or li- maybe eventually an audio version of the book. Or take a out. job in El Paso. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, book, two, book two will be coming following here pretty soon. Yeah, in June or July, and it'll be launched on Subcontractor Institute. will be the collection side of it, which is specifically for Texas, because that's what I know. Right. Well, Carolyn Cromines. Yes. Thank you so much. The book? Quit Getting Screwed, Understanding and Negotiating the Subcontract. Um, I'd recommend it, highly recommend it. Again, very, very easy to read. Um, Like I said before, thousands of dollars worth of advice within that book, even suggestions of what you should do when it comes to negotiating and and what verbiage you should include. Um, Completely worth it. $3.99 for digital copy. And we will put all of the links to Carolyn in the show notes. Yeah, everything everything will be included on the show notes, so uh, check out our website for that. Like us and follow us and rate us. The, the more and more that happens, the more and more we get put in front of other people that may, may really need to hear this. So, um, you know, every comment, every like, every share, every rating, all that is, is for the greater good and helps more than you know. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.